Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. If you heard that amazing smooth music by the absurdist, you don't know whether this is an announcement or an on-ramping, but it is an on-ramping. And if you've never heard our on-ramping series before, I had this idea. It was somewhat of a bidet thought. If you listen to the whole network, you know what a bidet thought is. And I, I was wondering, you know, what is the mind frame of someone who... So I took it all the way back to bikes versus automobiles and I thought, what is the mind frame of someone who has a bicycle, loves their bicycle, but then they keep seeing these cars fly by, or not fly by, but drive by, and they keep hearing about this buzz called the automobile, and they don't really know what it is, but they'd like to, and and I was like, what is the mind frame of that person? So I came up with this idea, and I call it On Ramping with D, where I kind of hear questions from that type of person who's heard about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and seen the craze and wants to know a little bit more. And um, here we are. So today we're joined with Mary Catherine. Hello, Mary. Hey, Dee. Glad to be here. And um, I would like for you to introduce yourself. Like, who are you? What do you do? Where are you from? And then how you stumbled upon to the point where now you're on on, on ramping with Dee. Yes. So I'm originally from Annapolis, Maryland, and spent about 10 years living and working in Colorado. And now I am practicing attorney in Chicago, Illinois. I, my brother is a huge fan of yours, so he's very excited that I'm on the show. And a big cryptocurrency guy who has been talking about it to me for years, but I've never really dug in on it. I've never had the opportunity to learn a lot about it. And I, it's something I'm interested in. I'm hearing a lot more about it, both in personally, as well as professionally, you're hearing a little bit about cryptocurrency and what that looks like in the legal field. But I'm just curious to hear more about it, really understand what it is, and hopefully have you answer all my questions. Sweet. Well, yeah. I'm like Radio Shack. You got questions. I got answers. I hope no one from Radio Shack is hearing me say that. I don't like being sued, but 
but whatever. I said it. So. <laughs> I know a few people I could probably help you out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know the right people now. So that's okay. Um, so, so, so what's your first question that, that you have for this entire industry? Like something you're just curious about, like your very first lead off question. Hmm. How did you get into Bitcoin and cryptocurrency? How did you learn about it? Oh, okay. My whole little personal story into Bitcoin and crypto. So um, I had a roommate by the name of Dr. Petty. He's a co-host of the Bitcoin podcast. Um, great friend of mine. Met him playing indoor soccer. Well, my at that time, my best friend met him playing indoor soccer. We were playing a lot of Halo 2 at the time. We needed a ghost operations specialist. And he happened to, to operate the ghost very well. And so Corey joined our squad on Halo 2. And that's how I met Corey. And long story short... Uh, I was his roommate for four years, and at the end of that four years, he and I got really into investing. It was random. Um, so that's kind of how we kept touch after we left school uh, at Texas Tech. The uh, university is a small school that's so small, it's the best school in college basketball right now, but I just wanted to do a small shout-out right there. Uh, <laughs> and um, he calls me when I'm teaching. He's like, hey, man, I found out about this technology. It's crazy. It's called Bitcoin. It's it's like digital cash. And, and and people are using it. And it's supposed to be worth a lot in the future. And this is how the tech works. And I told him, I think like my exact words are like, if I wanted to play with Monopoly money, I'd just go buy Monopoly. And, you know, I shut him off. And he keeps calling me and he keeps telling me about it. And the very last time, it was mid 2013 uh he told me first told me about it in 2012 mid 2013 he sends me the white paper and he's like he's it's basically like hey i'm tired of explaining this why don't you just read it and uh, i read the white paper and i saw like oh okay this is why it works you know there's actually sound principles in mathematics as to why this works and then he calls me later in october and he's like hey remember that bitcoin thing i tried to tell you about like a year ago well it was like 25 dollars when i told you about it it's 800 dollars now and i was like oh so of course you know the financial draw pulled me in after i had read the white paper so then i did even more investigating into the technology and I bought my first Bitcoin late 2013, right at a high, at 1025 bucks, December 4th. And uh, then it crashed down to like $185 the next year. It was great. But that was kind of my introduction into crypto. My buddy, Dr. Petty, who, uh, computational physicist guy, just dropped the white paper on my lap and said, hey, you dig into it. How do you explain Bitcoin to people who are not computational physicists? That's a like great myself. question. So the easiest way to explain it, um, not the easiest way, but the mind bottling moment is that once you realize there's digital uniqueness now and how important that can be moving into the future, then you kind of understand Bitcoin. And what I mean by digital uniqueness is like before, like if I send you a document, I now have a copy of that document and you have a copy of that document. But now 
because of Bitcoin and what it allows with the encryption and signing things with encrypted signature, you can now have a digitally unique thing. If I send you something, I don't have it anymore. You have it and I don't. So, and, and that's over the internet and that's without a bank or not a bank, just any kind of third party ensuring that what I sent you is what I sent you. What I sent you is what I sent you, and you're the only one that has it. That, to me, is the powerful thing. So, to someone who doesn't understand it, like the reason why people see it as money, and why the obvious first use case is money, is because if I send you a set of ones and zeros, and you're the only person who has that set of ones and zeros that are like it, then that's kind of a valuable thing. Right? Hmm. So... That's how I would explain it to someone. Um, why Bitcoin's a currency is because now we have this like there's only there's only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoin, right? So there's not going to be a lot. Why is, why is there a why is there a cap number? Why isn't there an infinite amount of Bitcoin out there? Absolutely. So it it kind of goes into why Bitcoin was created. And why the timing was right is that Bitcoin is deflationary as opposed to what we work on, which is inflationary. You know, like if I got $30 in my pocket now, 10 years from now, I'm not going to be able to get $30 worth of things. You know, I'll be able to get $15 worth of things or I don't I don't think the rate's that fast. I'll be able to get like $25 worth of things. So we have the system that encourages us to spend money when we get it so that we, you know, fuel this consumerism and we feel capitalism there's always this massive velocity of value exchanging hands but with a deflationary currency there's only 21 million so it's actually supposed to gain value over time and that was done on purpose that was that's basically kind of emulated gold right gold has a cap we know exactly you know how much about how much gold is going to enter circulation and we know how much there is Right. And so you can kind of build commerce off of that fact that since we know how much there is, there's a great unit of account there. We know exactly there's only so much gold. So there's only so much Bitcoin. And the whole theory, you know, it's kind of been bastardized nowadays. There's the get a Lambo, get rich, uh, gains, uh, hold, hodl. There's all these things that have been built around the precipice, the, uh, the precedent that. If there's only 21 million, the higher the demand, the higher the value, mm-hmm. right? If, yeah. if if there's 10 people that want one thing, great. If there's now 1,000 people that want that same one thing, the demand goes up, price goes up. Right. And so I think a while back I stopped thinking about it in terms of dollars and just purchasing power. Like the purchasing power of a Bitcoin is going to grow extremely given the adoption grows. So the reason there was 21 million and there's a cap is so we don't get into situations with doing building commerce on top of this system um, like we've gotten into with the dollar. Where every month we've got to print billions of more dollars to try and keep up with what we've built with this extreme capitalism that we're going into i don't even know if we can call it capitalism anymore but yeah it's just that just put a cap on it so it's deflationary so that you can always have this nascent demand 
throughout overtime. And then once those 21 million, are they already all in, in the Bitcoin market or no, they're currently being mined? They're currently being mined. So I have questions around that. That's good. So let's, let's talk about this whole mining thing and, and why, why you need to mine. Right. So I said something earlier about like, I send you something and we don't need a third party. Right. We don't need somebody to verify that it happened. Why? Because it actually goes on the blockchain. So what happens is if I do a transaction between me to you, that transaction goes into what's called the mempool, memory pool, right? It's just a whole pool of people that are doing transactions with each other, right? Now, these miners are all competing, and that's all they're really doing is using a lot of computers to randomly generate a number that also generates a number small enough to win some Bitcoin. I'm going to put win in quotations, right? We'll call that mining. Are these huh? miners, I'm going to interrupt you, are these miners people or are they just like self-running programs and computers or are there actual people sitting behind those computers doing this? Like, are miners it's, a, just, it's just a program. Right, it's Program. software that you launch on your computer, but you got to build a very, very specific and customized rig to to mine, and that has gotten as competitive as the regular gold mining uh, got so competitive, right? So we can tell a little bit. So it all started with this guy or some people named Satoshi Nakamoto, right? He releases Bitcoin on a forum. Like shortly after the the, the uh, stock market crash in 2008, he says, hey, guys, I've been working on this thing called Bitcoin, and here it is. You can participate if you want to. Here's the white paper, and the white paper explains how to participate. So the first person mining was just one guy. It was just Satoshi Nakamoto. I'll put one guy in quotations because they don't know if it's a guy or it's a group of people. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, a second person who hopped on the network was this guy, Hal Finney, and now you have two miners. And the way it works is every 10 minutes, one of the miners on the network finds a block and they get new Bitcoin. And when they get new Bitcoin, they also solidify all the transactions that were put into a block. Mm -hmm. And you get your transaction into a block by paying a transaction fee. So you pay for the miners to secure the network. And that's what these transaction fees. I don't know if you've read into it last year. We had these huge problems with these transaction fees. It's because the more people that use Bitcoin, the fees go up because it's kind of like an auction. The more you pay a fee, the miner is going to pick up that fee first. Mm-hmm. Right? And they're going to throw your transaction into a block. So every 10 minutes, a new block is being formed. And when it started... It was every 10 minutes, you get 50 new Bitcoin every time you successfully mine a block. But that is by design supposed to split in half every four years. So it went from 50 Bitcoin to it was 25 Bitcoin. And now it's 12 and a half Bitcoin every 10 minutes. Right. So somebody right now today starting at midnight, every 10 out, every 10 minutes from midnight, there's been a random miner that's made 12 and a half Bitcoin for successfully finding a block. 
how many miners are out there now? Like how many miners do are there Ooh. currently in the market or like way too many to count? <laughs> That's a tough question. I can only say with confidence that the network, it shouldn't be a tough question. I should have these facts at my fingertips. Um, I do know it's the largest com network of computers that humanity's ever created. And it's all created to secure Bitcoin. And I believe it's in of the order of 14 to 15 exahashes, which would be 14,000 terahashes, which would be 14 million giga. It's, it's pretty big. It's pretty big. <laughs> it's pretty big. And so, so that kind of spins me into this another conversation. What is a hash? Well, if you, you, you know enough about computers to know about like a floating operation point, like a flop. No. Well, it's it's basically like one calculation. Okay. Let's let's equate it to one calculation, right? So a hash mm -hmm. is one calculation. So we're doing fourteen to fifteen exahashes uh, per second. Um, that's a very very large number. I I can't remember exahash is like ten to the billions, ten to the nine, ten to the twelve, ten to the fifteen. I believe. So that's 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 how many calculations per second the entire network is doing, just securing the Bitcoin network. And that there's there's a lot of infrastructure. It sounds like what you're saying. Mm -hmm. You have to put up a place in order for you to even start mining. Yeah. So mining has gotten so difficult to where the, you actually need millions of dollars to start up and hope that you're going to get a return on your investment, because because miners are are paying in energy. Right, they're staking their energy in some real estate to mine crypto to mine cryptocurrency with the chance at finding blocks. Because you find a block, you get new Bitcoin, and all you want to do is make sure you find enough Bitcoin to uh, pay your electricity bills and pay your employees for maintenance. Hmm. Right, so that's how mining works, and mining has gotten mining has gotten to the point where you just got huge Walmart sized buildings full of these things called ASICs, which are specifically designed chips to mine Bitcoin. And that's all they're doing 24 hours a day, seven days a week is securing the Bitcoin blockchain. And that's it. Right. Wow. So it's, so the algorithm is also designed that after 10 days, the difficulty changes. Right. So the more people that are mining it, the algorithm has to get more difficult. So so if you have more computers coming together to work on a problem and you don't change the difficulty of the algorithm, they're going to get really good at it. Right. They're going to start solving it in seconds in fractions of a second. So if you change the algorithm every 10 days and adjust the difficulty, I think it's every 10 days. I'm pretty sure I'm solid on that number then it becomes more difficult. You can keep that rate uh, still every 10 minutes. Hmm. So it kind of gamifies mining, right? That's the beauty of it, is that sometimes you'll see miners leave the network for whatever. Maybe they're having a rough month and they're not finding any Bitcoin. They can't pay their bills. They turn all their rigs off. Well, a lot of miners turn all their rigs off. Well, the difficulty drops. It now becomes easier to mine again. It increases your chances to win more Bitcoin. You turn your miners back on. You win some Bitcoin. Oh, the difficulty goes back up. But what if you did so well through the random design that you now can afford more miners? Well, now you can keep mining 
even as the difficulty increases, is this beautiful game just within mining in and of itself. Wow. Yeah, it's this massive industry that I'm not even aware of. Oh, it is. Walmart-sized places just filled Oh, it is huge. The technology? Yeah. It It is huge. And now that's extended into the Ethereum realm and the Litecoin realm. And basically, you have all these currencies where miners have literally turned electricity into money. Like, literally. That's what they did. That's what they're doing. <laughs> so, it gets deep you, real quick. Huh? Yeah. I've heard you say on another podcast or on a show that you are not a Bitcoin maximalist. That I'm not. you You utilize different... What's the, what's the benefit of jumping in with all of these different new cryptocurrencies is that a, okay are they all cryptocurrencies um i recently read a book that's changed my mind on a lot of this uh, free publicity for this book it's called crypto assets by jack tater and chris berniski and they have the whole the whole industry they call is uh they call them crypto commodities and there's cryptocurrencies there's cri- sorry crypto asset excuse me crypto assets and there's cryptocurrencies crypto tokens and crypto commodities Right, so that's something that newly adopted by me that I kind of subscribe to because it makes sense. So cryptocurrency would be like Bitcoin or Litecoin or Monero. Why? Because they kind of only just work as currencies. They don't really do a lot more than allow commerce to take place. Um, that's it. And then you have something like a crypto commodity, which is Ethereum or Ether. Um, because ether, the big difference between ether and Bitcoin is because Bitcoin says person A sent money to person B. Ether says person A sent money to person B if these sets of conditions took place first, right? That's a very broad stroke of Ethereum. All it did was add if then statements to the transaction. So there's triggers in place if something happens. You got it. And they call that a smart contract. Huh? If like if the Eagles win the Super Bowl, then A sends money to B. There you go. That's that would be a very simple smart contract on the Ethereum network. Right? But the guy who built Ethereum Vitalik also said, like, why are we constricting transactions to just monetary transactions? Right? There's a lot you could trade a house for something. You can People don't always – you could trade information for, for, for money. You could trade information for other things. You could build these contracts, right? So Ethereum is a much broader broader network. It actually proposes to be uh, the uh, virtual, virtual computer of the world. And the reason why it's a crypto commodity is because you need Ether to run these – Smart contracts is what I'll call them, or decentralized applications on this virtual computer. Right? So, this is where it gets a little bit sci fi, is because you, you have companies like Facebook and like Google that are housing just all of this, this wealth of data on everyone, right? And it's a cost for them to hold that data, plus, they hold that data. But if you could build a decentralized application and have enough ether to fuel it to run on the virtual computer of the world, then all of a sudden all that data is decentralized coming from more 
silos than just Google and Facebook. It's coming from people's actual computers. Right. So it it gets a little it gets a little sci-fi with Ethereum. But think of it like this. The Internet was built to send messages. That's it. It only sends messages. So although it looks really great and we've managed to 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 build on the, all these layers on the Internet to make it to the point where you can get on Facebook and just change your up your status and it changes and it locks in that's just messages being sent so fast and so routed um that it's a beautiful thing when the user's using it but none of these computers are really working on the same things at the same time they're just communicating to each other really well and doing things at the right times does that make sense yeah, yeah. so with ethereum all these computers can be working on the same things at the same time and the way that they're doing that is they have this application that's no longer just housed on the Facebook servers or the Google servers. This application is running on everybody's computer and everybody's com- contributing just a little bit of processing power or a little bit of storage or a little bit of RAM to keep that decentralized application running, right? Interesting. So it's, it's, it's kind of cool when you think about it. It's like, oh, like, the world's computers are running on this Ethereum network what network, and using Ether as the means to work on the same problems at the same time. I have not heard as much about Ethereum or Ether. And what type of, you were saying, taking it outside of just cryptocurrency, but what, what would be, like if I were to jump onto that network today or tomorrow, what would be the utilization of that in my daily life? Interesting. So... here's the big ticker right now. Um, There aren't many, if any. (laughs) That's that's why people like me and Corey and my co-hosts are are wondering what the hype is about because we haven't really built that much right now. We've got this, we just got this stuff off the ground, right? There could be use cases for it. Like for instance, with storage, which is a crypto token, that runs on the Ethereum network, you can actually sell off your extra hard drive space, right? So for someone like me, he's a complete geek. I got a huge computer to my left. I'm on a laptop. You see that computer in the back, which is a server. I have like, I don't know, maybe hundreds of terabytes of storage that I don't use for whatever random reason that I have that. Well, I could sell that. I could literally digitally have a digital storage unit Right, in which people paid me in storage token and they could encryptedly store their data on my server or on my computer and I could get paid in storage over time. Right, so that would be one use case for me. I don't know if it'd be for everyone, but that's one use case. And that could come from anywhere on the internet. Hey, if you pay me storage token, I will house your data. I don't know what it is, I don't care what it is, but I, I can keep that cost from you and I can house your data on my system. Right? That's one use case. Interesting. Um, there's another use case uh, that I'm very interested in with a crypto token called BAT um, where you can actually pay websites so you don't get advertised to because even if you are running an ad blocker, it's still wasting resources on your computer. So... If you can pay a website 
to not run ads, then you get to save resources on your computer. This is all nerdy stuff. So. No, I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> I get so many ads on my computer. And and so imagine like you go to so everybody goes to what ten to fifteen different websites in a year. They don't go to that many different websites. People just don't. Maybe they do. Maybe I don't know what I'm talking about, but I was here before the internet and I've lived through the what it's become. And I know people aren't going to hundreds of different websites a year regularly. So what if you just want to contribute and give back to the places that you do go to and you give them like $2 a month in bat token? And now they don't have to shovel ads in your face to keep the lights on. Right. They can they could get paid by the advertising companies some other way, but it's not to shovel ads in my face so they can keep the lights on. So imagine if you've got millions of users that come to your Web page every month and millions of users give you a few dollars to not be advertised to. Well, there you go. So that concept of Bitcoin is like leading me back to the idea of these crypto, how cryptocurrency is being utilized today. So what, I mean, if I were to jump in and buy Bitcoin tomorrow, how can I use that? Oh, okay. How can I use well, that and translate that into money now? Or Bitcoin, how is that done? So Bitcoin is being used as money. Every day, in lots of places. My personal preference website to get stuff is purse.io. That's an amazing website. Um, you can get anything you can get on Amazon and more through purse.io. And you can just buy stuff. And you can select your own discount, which is beautiful, right? So, what does that mean? Oh, man. It's great. So the guy at Purse thought of a different idea. He was like, hey, instead of me fishing for the price that I want, why don't I just declare the price that I'm willing to pay for a thing and let the market grant me my wish? And so that's basically what you do on Purse. Like you go shopping for a thing that's on Amazon and you say, I want a 20% discount. And the likelihood of you getting that discount it, it extends your shipping time, right? So like if it's something that you need tonight, today, right now, the most discount you can get is like 10%. But if it's something big that you're willing to wait a few weeks on, maybe even a month, you can, you can shoot for like a 25, 30% discount and you pay with Bitcoin. Right? So it's a very interesting company and it's built on the principle that Bitcoin reduces your overhead so they take that overhead and give it back to the consumer. Now, given how Bitcoin's been behaving the past few months, I'm not quite sure that business model is still is roughing the storm. But they did offer, now they take Ether and now they take Litecoin and they take everything. So, um, I saw an article about how Domino's Pizza was one of the first to start accepting payment by Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and that... 50 cent now thinks he's is now has eight million dollars worth of bitcoin because he didn't realize that he allowed his album to be sold or to be people to purchase it using bitcoin several years ago and now he's sitting on a bunch of bitcoin so yeah you know, uh, there's like there's our transactions out there it's just not something that i'm seeing yeah that that's that's one thing that isn't publicized a lot because i don't know why uh, there's a lot of things that aren't publicized a lot. I'm working to change that with my little podcast network. Hopefully I can. But 
you know, there's people doing commerce with Bitcoin. Venezuela is a good use case as well. Um, their government is terrible. I, I heard a word this past week. It blew my mind. Kleptocrats. Someone who just steals their way into power and keeps stealing. Um, I hope no one from Venezuela listens to my podcast and I get on someone's list or something. But uh, the people in Venezuela have had to use Bitcoin to buy groceries off the black market to live. Right. Wow. So yeah. that was a unique use case that popped up, started the middle of last year, is that the people in Venezuela are like, I can't afford groceries with my toilet paper money that my government is issuing to me. Hyperinflation. I think inflation reached 5,500 percent in Venezuela. Right. So, That's crazy. yeah, take your dollar and it's now worth, what, 55 less dollars. Is that, did I do that math right in my head? Yeah, so I think I did that right, math right in my head. My students would be sad with how I just presented that, my ex-students. <laughs> so they've had to take Bitcoin to buy groceries off the black market from Cuba and other places not to be named in the United States and ship groceries in through the black market just to live because there's this thing in Venezuela now called the Venezuelan famine, but all it really is is the government can't feed their people because you're required to use the government currency, but the government currency is garbage, so the people can't afford food. So, wow. so that's a that's a unique use case. Uh, there's other unique use cases as well. For instance, we interviewed a, a woman named Fresh Faro, who um, the, the young girl she would send young girls to pay for the school. She has a school called Code to Inspire in Afghanistan, where she empowers young women uh, by educating them, and especially educating them in computer science and coding. Well, what was happening is these young women were being taken advantage of because the baddies figured out that random girls were going to pay to keep the to pay the bills for the academy. Girls were being taken advantage of in the bad the baddest way imaginable. So then she worked out with the the local uh, person that she was paying the bills to to keep the academy open. Like, hey, how about I just pay you in Bitcoin so that way I don't have to put these girls at risk. You know, I can't I can't pay you in this cash anymore because this is what you're missing payments because these girls are getting stopped and harassed and then it's still their money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how about I just pay you in Bitcoin? And once they had that one agreement that, yes, they could pay in Bitcoin, boom. That's so, interesting. It's good to share those examples because I do think my initial exposure, maybe my initial the first time I was hearing about Bitcoin – was around the Silk Road when that was <laughs> uh, then that was there was multiple you know exposure stories about that yeah. what that looked like and how it was being built and I understand that I've heard you say before that you know that Bitcoin and cryptocurrency maybe has a stigma around it that that's what it's being utilized for things on the black market or for nefarious uses so I'm trying mm-hmm. to bridge the gap of like what would that look like culturally and socially in daily lives being utilized in, yep. in that are not that. I mean, AT&T, if you're listening, I paid your phone bill for an entire year using Bitcoin. So, there you, go. you know, it doesn't, it, it's not for nefarious purpose. It's just saying that Bitcoin is used for only illicit activities is like saying hammers are only used for murder. It's just a tool. <laughs> It's just a tool. People use a tool how they want to use a tool. You so talk to wa- me about the digital uniqueness or the 
anonymity associated with those when you create a transaction and then you can you track who that transaction is going to or who it's coming from? So Bitcoin is actually very pseudonymous. It's not anonymous. Um, okay. If you use the same private key to push transactions out every time, you can be found really, really easily, really easily. In fact, I've said it many times and I'll say it again. If you want to use Bitcoin to do bad stuff, you're going to be in jail fast because they can track you very, very fast. Like it's digital currency, man. Like you, you got to understand that they can get back to you really fast. So Bitcoin isn't even used for illicit activities, not even hardly as much as you, you'd read in the news because the baddies found out about that. They're like, oh, they could track me back because I'm using Bitcoin. I'm going to use something else. Mm-hmm. Right now, there are currencies where they can't track you back. They are totally anonymous mathematically anyways and that's your monero and that's your zcash um they use a different um well they just use a different a different uh, software and you can't find if somebody spends money with monero you have no idea who that person is period um with bitcoin it's pseudonymous so you know what i mean by pseudonymous is that it doesn't cover up who you are uh, to the point where you can't be found. It just does a way better job of covering up who you are as far as your transactional information, right? It's nowhere near as exposed as putting your credit card information into a website. You're only putting this like long alphanumeric code into a website. Can your you Bitcoin be hacked the same way that your credit card information, your bank account information are hacked online? Not if you have your private keys. So you don't your public facing key is much different than your private key. So there's two two things here. This is some lingo that you you gotta know about in cryptos. There's a private key and there's public keys. The private key generates the public keys, but the private key is the only key that can send things. The public key can receive things. Right? So you can give anyone in the world your public key. And all they can ever do is send you crypto. If you ever want to send money out, do an output, and sign that output, you've got to sign that with your private key. So unless you're out there giving everyone in the world your private key, you can't, nobody can hack your Bitcoin. But you wouldn't, I mean, that's the same thing as like giving someone a bank account information? Yeah. That's the same thing as like walking around if you're giving a, if you're giving out your bank account information and you never give anyone your private key. It's much different than your bank account number, actually, because I've given my bank account number out at least like 30 times in the last three years for the trans like the that's a that's an exaggeration. But like, you know, for different services, different people trying to pay me like I give them my account. No- well, no, your account number is basically like your public key. You know, in this case, the bank has the private key. So with Bitcoin, your private key is just your private key. You don't give that to anyone. You hold on to that. Now, hacking happens the way the Internet's built. Hacking is a thing that's going to enter your life. And when you work with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, you've just got to take other security measures, right? You've got to have longer passwords and better passwords you got to remember your passwords you got to make sure where your private key is is stored like the irony of my situation is that 
I now have private keys in a security box in a bank <laughs> because it's just ironic because it's like I don't I don't need banks to manage my money. I need I need a bank to hold on to the thing that I use to ma- manage my Your money. <laughs> so it's it's ironic. Um but it just so happens that if you're if you're gonna if you're gonna dwell into crypto, you've gotta you gotta touch up on your operational security and your social security skills just because you just start paying attention to the vulnerabilities and how you behave on the internet. Right? Yeah. So yeah. I've given advice to this before is like have eight different passwords and then have subtle iterations of those passwords that you can always remember. And that way you can kind of keep mental tabs. I think the only reason I'm able to do that is because when I went through school, they made us change our password like every month and had to be like 12 characters long with random ass characters. And so I just made one that's like 24 characters long. It's not 24 characters long. I just like for people to hear that. It's really, really long, longer. I'm not going to say exactly how many because then hackers would know. (laughs) Uh, You know, I'm trying to practice op security. But make a really, really long password, uh, uppercase, lowercase, special characters, all the, all that jazz, and make four to eight iterations of that, and just keep that in your hip pocket. And Bitcoin can't be hacked. It's your behavior and what you're doing on the internet that leads to you being hacked. Sure. Right. And so this kind of goes into hot wallet, cold wallet. Have you heard these terms before? No. Okay, good. This is good. So a hot wallet is any wallet that's touched the internet. A cold wallet is a wallet that has never touched the internet. And then a hardware wallet is a hardware device. Hold up. We're on video. Let me find my... I think I have my... Nope. I put that in a locker. So a hardware device... Huh? I said you're repping an Ethereum t-shirt. I am repping an Ethereum t-shirt. Uh, I do like Ethereum. Uh-oh. I don't want you to know that I love Ethereum that much. So this is a hardware wallet that I bought. It's a Ledger Blue. And this is actually uh, encrypted on the chipset of the device, right? So when I, I put my uh, crypto on there, uh, and nobody get into it. It's a little bank in my pocket. That's what this thing is. Okay. Um, so there's hardware wallets. This is one of them. A hot wallet would be like Coinbase. I know you've heard of Coinbase. Um, they are an internet-based wallet. So inherently less secure because they exist on the internet. And that's where the pirates are. That's where the attackers are. Right? Um, Coinbase is a very trusted community. And they they've they never given out the secret sauce as to how they operate. I do know that they physically take your private keys and split them up and put them into different locations in the United States, but nobody knows where those are. Um, so Coinbase is a very trusted company. They can be the custodian of your wallet. Um, and then cold wallet is so this is intense. This is when it gets into like extreme user experience. If you buy a new laptop, roast it, 
what I mean by roasted is like clear the memory cache, clear everything that's on that new laptop, never hook it up to the internet, put a new operating system on there, generate a private key on that new system, then that system has never touched the internet. It is the most secure as ever. And now you can actually use your private key to send money from a computer that's actually offline. Wow. So these are the options that I would have if I purchase Bitcoin. These are the options I have of how to store it. Of how to store it, right? So you've got your hot wallets and you've got cold wallets and you've got hardware wallets. Got it. Right. And the Coinbase, that is where there's like an insurance-based aspect to storing it? Yeah, Coinbase has an insurer. Um, they insure a certain amount of your Bitcoin. It's not FDIC insured. A lot of people think that it's a third-party insurance company. And if Coinbase ever loses your Bitcoin because they did something stupid or if somebody like or someone internally uh, defects and they take people's private keys and, you know, if Coinbase is at fault, then they'll get you your Bitcoin back. So they do have that insurance policy. Do you think there is a point in the future where Bitcoin will be FDIC insured? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that um, I think the government talks a big game and the SEC and stuff. They're talking a big game, but certain trends you don't fight. And there's massive and massive amounts of people that have decided that they want to save Bitcoin as a store of value and they want to invest in Bitcoin and you just can't tell them no, like that's a very authoritarian thing to do. And so that's, that's the longer time goes on, the more the government is just going to have to learn how to play the game. Because at one point you could say it was only for bad stuff. But when you look at me, I'm a school teacher and I use Bitcoin. Am I a bad person? No, I just want to use Bitcoin. Yeah. You know, or I was a school teacher or, and now there's many more people like my co-host is a marketer. The other one is a scientist. Like we're not bad people. We just want to use Bitcoin. Yeah. And I'm interested in it from an investing standpoint. I don't mm. know that I would be, I, I mean, the hearing about being able to purchase stuff off Amazon or Domino's pizza with it, not a bad idea, but I think if I were to get into this market, what interests me is the investment aspect of it. And I'm curious to hear your perspective on what, if anything, do you think of like the social justice impact of investing in Bitcoin or what would there be any ramifications around that? I think I become interested in learning about how to invest my money to know that it's not going to, let's say, private prisons, which is something I'm personally against, you know, funding these different things. And so is mm. there a social justice impact associated with investing in Bitcoin? Um, there's one coin you probably should take a look at called Alice Token. They're doing a unique thing. Um, I think there's this new movement called impact investing. Right. And you want to know that the money that you're investing is going toward a cause. And using Ethereum, you can start building in these nifty smart contracts to prove that things are going where they're going and money is going where it's supposed to go. Um, and that's the I, trigger, the like, if then? 
Yeah, that's the trigger. So, like, if you give money to some random uh, organization that's a dot org overseas fighting uh, famine by building miniature corner stores, or I don't know what, however the organization works, you can now build in a smart contract that says, okay, tag this bank account number or whatever to this amount of ether to show that when that transaction was made to buy that those goods then you release the ether right or you release the payment or whatever currency they want right so you can start to have nifty digital contracts built in to do things like that um there's also this one company it was kind of sci-fi but they're trying to physically prove the uh amount of good oxygen that they're putting into the atmosphere by the way a farmer farms so like they had this they had this sensor that you put into the ground it would measure all these different chemical levels of the soil and if a farmer farms a certain way they're actually uh, increasing the um, longevity of the soil and the soil's ability to help produce plants that produce more oxygen it was next level shit but basically <laughs> They tied it to, like, if a farmer was farming this way to increase the amount of oxygen uh, to counteract some of these global climate change uh, um, consequences that we're going through, then they could start to get paid for that. Um, I, I saw this at a conference called Developers Conference, by the way, so if you're ever interested you should Google develop DevCon three, which is where it was, and you just see these projects people are thinking of that are like, wow, that is next level. And so the answer is yes, you could actually know that your investment was going to good, and it could be provable because it goes on the blockchain, and this certain blockchain has rule sets that say if these conditions are met, then the person actually gets the money that the investors put forward. And that's already created into the technology so there's not a person or people a team of people managing that yep. to make sure that that happens exactly like if the conditions are built and they're sound then there doesn't need to be a giant group of people or an entity that's assuring that these things take place you just look on the blockchain and see that it happened that's kind of the beauty of this this tech yeah does the tech ever crash like does it ever break down if there's nobody using it yeah, but Bitcoin, there's a ton of miners. <laughs> there's a ton of miners, and there's uh, nodes. You don't even have to mine. You could just run a node, and that helps keep – that makes the system more robust as well. So, like, the less people using it, the easier it is to sabotage that system. The more people using it, it's damn, it's not damn near impossible. It is impossible. It will not happen in anyone's lifetime in any universe. It just won't happen. So um, that takes me into something. So there is a vulnerability in Bitcoin. That's called the 51% attack. And that's at any point in time, if more than 51% of the network is one entity, then technically that person could have the ability to go through and decide what transactions go through and what don't. Interesting. Yeah, if somebody gets the majority, yes. But because these systems are decentralized and distributed across the globe, no one has that majority. 
right? So the more people that participate across the globe, you've got all these different entities that have different values and different needs. Obviously, they're not going to be using Bitcoin for the same reason you are or investing in Bitcoin even, but they're still a part of that system, right? And so since they are a part of that system, but they have much different needs for that system, it actually makes that system stronger. You know, so somebody looking at like a larger picture of utilization of Bitcoin. So like where in the world is it being utilized more, less, how people are using it, what types of demographics of people are using it? Mm -hmm. So the easiest way to bucket those two things is into speculative reasons for the use. Sorry, speculative use cases, which is people trying to make a buck or people thinking it's going to be a great investment 10 years down the line or, or 15 years down the line. They bought all this Bitcoin and yay, now they can buy homes and do other things they wanted to do. They use it as an investment. And then there is a use case bucket that you can put people into. And those are the things that I was speaking to earlier in the conversation, like uh, Venezuela, people using it. Um, you know, Afghanistan, they're using it. People using it on purse.io. People use small businesses using Bitcoin to... I don't know, do everything. There's a bunch of small businesses in Austin, a uh, bunch of small businesses in Germany, uh, some in Sweden. Like there's these hubs all over the world where small businesses have started using Bitcoin and really committed to what, how to operate a business on cryptocurrency. I myself have a business that operates on cryptocurrency. So we only accept crypto. At one point we were like, we'll take PayPal too. We'll take your dollars. And then I put the kibosh on that. And I was like, no, I don't want, dollars i want i want cryptocurrency um we'll get along with uncle sam later but i want cryptocurrency and i want to do commerce in cryptocurrency so if you put you go ahead i was gonna say do you see do you see cryptocurrency moving it's interesting because right there's no there's no boundaries the way that there are national currencies uh, you know, like we have a U.S. Mm -hmm. currency and the other countries have different currencies. But cryptocurrency, it, it doesn't matter where it's going in the world. It has the same value depending on what it is that day, correct? Yeah. I, so, um, go ahead. Do you see, do you see cryptocurrency uh, ever replacing um, our paper and paper and coin currency we have in the U.S.? Uh, that would be... Far, far, far in the future. I think that we're going to need to return to some sort of reserve for the world. Because just speaking in human fairness, how fair was it that for decades and decades and decades, the U.S. dollar was the reserve and we forced, basically soft forced everyone to use the dollar as the reserve currency? Well, the thing that happens to that is that the smarter nations and the better nations are going to figure out how to participate in that system, and they're going to start to gain a lot of value in that system, and they're going to want a bigger seat at the table. And we're starting to witness some stuff like that now, like China and Russia are like, like, why does everything have to be – why does all this oil have to be bought with dollars? Like, buy here, random country, if you want to pay for your oil, you can pay for it in the, in the yawn. Go for it. Right? And – so you start to see these little currency wars go on. And I think ultimately, my if I had to put on my Nostradamus hat, I would say that the, all of these major powers are going to create their own digital currency. 
But when at the very end of the day, when they're faced with the problem that they have to all come together to solve, they're going to have to base their currencies in a reserve currency. And I think that reserve is going to be Bitcoin. Now, when that happens, I don't know. I'll probably be old and gray, but it's going to have to happen. <laughs> if you look at the direction things are headed, it's going to have to happen because we're, we're, we're approaching problems that we can't solve with nation state um patterns of thinking and we're approaching them really quickly and so if it's not some global issue that we've all got to get behind and find a way to base our currencies in then we're just not going to be able to solve those problems right interesting that's my getting philosophical and the one thing the one problem i look at very uniquely is like what's going to happen if we do crack that nut to being able to mine minerals from asteroids because there's that plan is in the that plans in the deck of plans we want to mine minerals from asteroids and we know how to launch a rocket and attach it to an asteroid like we've we've built that and people don't understand like we we we've built those plans so what does it look like if all of a sudden all this copper that we thought was limited in scope we go mine millions of tons of it off of an asteroid and bring it back the whole freaking economies the global economy is thrown on its head right those are real problems they're not going to happen while i'm on this planet but those are real problems so but you think that bitcoin could be a foundational thing moving forward absolutely if everyone was basing their currency in bitcoin i think it would be a good common language that we could all use to make very powerful decisions later What do you see as, because there's all these different types of new currencies, cryptocurrencies coming forward, what are, what are considered maybe core principles of a good cryptocurrency? You were saying there's Mm -hmm. some that are used for maybe more nefarious uses, but then what's, so with these new ones popping up, what's, uh, what are some core principles of what you would determine to be a good cryptocurrency? Mm, That is a great question. Thank you. That is a phenomenal question. That's something someone like myself should be thinking about on a daily basis. (laughs) Because there's going to have to be rules that people play by. I think that's probably where your lawyer background. Are there rules that people are playing by in this realm? (laughs) Not right now. Doesn't seem like it. People are trying to build rules. The rules are in the code. And... uh, that's the thing is that that's not that's not how humanity really gets down like people aren't walking around talking to each other in javascript and that's something that that, huh does that also mean you said because the rules are in the code does that mean that whoever's creating the code are the ones that are creating the rules yep so maybe that let's build a principle right here on this show today the more open source a code base is the better the token because and the more people participating in that open source project from different backgrounds in their coding professions the better that token is the more sound it is because now you've got a code base that's built by thousands of people and within those thousands of people you have people that are specifically there to audit the code 
and make sure that the code works like it says it does. You have people that are security experts that make sure that code is infallible. You have people that are design experts that make sure that code can scale to millions and millions of users. So maybe that's a maybe that we could say that that's a standard is how big is the community of developers around that token and how open is it to build on that token? Hmm. That, that can be it. So right now the tokens I can think off my head that are winning Bitcoin, Ethereum, Monero, Zcash, um, Those are the, yep, the crypto assets. Sorry, not currency. The crypto assets I can think of at the top of my head. Huge community. Like Bitcoin has tens, tens of thousands of people doing pull requests. So pull requests is essentially a developer goes in and makes a request to work on the code. Right? So there's people actively building on the code and you can go straight into the GitHub and look and see who those people are and see their background and see, you know, that that's something that's going to be really important going into the future is knowing the background of the people working on these projects because they decide the rules. Who do those requests go to? Like who's approving that request to go in and work on the It's code? open source. No one approves it. You just go and you work on it. Oh. No one approves it. It's, it's an open source. So that's... So that that goes that tie, wow you can talk about this stuff forever that ties into this big ICO craze right so ICOs initial coin offering what it actually has done is it made it the easiest way ever imaginable to fund open source projects right because that's hard to do it's hard to walk into a room full of investors and say hey this is an open source project we're not going to be the only ones working on it we're just the ones with the vision. The whole world's going to work on it. We're going to show you how. An investor's going to so like say, yeah, I'm not giving you millions of dollars for that idea. I don't care if you're going to cure cancer. Like That's just ridiculous. Yeah. Like too many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. like, But that's kind of the problem people are being faced with. Like these projects do these ICOs and they want to like, oh, now we have enough funding forever to fund this open source development. It's going to be it's going to be great, but then you've got all that money with a team of five people. You know what I mean? <laughs> it looks weird from the outside looking in. It's like, man, you just got $35 million to, to fund your project, but there's only five of you. So if you aren't making 15 things a day amongst the five of you, it's going to get real fishy real fast. What are you doing with all that money? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So... um there's the growing pains that the industry's going through, right? So now the industry's adjusted where you have a, a massive team. Like I see a lot, a big team full of people before they do an ICO and they have a roadmap and they have a structure behind what they are going to build. But at the very, very, very end of the day, some of those teams aren't open source. So it's like, whoa, I'm not going to play around on a network where only you've made the rules. I'm sorry. I'm not going to do that. So, you know, maybe that's it. Maybe we set the standard here today, Mary, um, and that is there needs to be a very sound network of developers actively working on this token or it should not it, 
its value should be really, really low. Yeah, I think I just, I think I, I struggle with wrapping my head around not, anonymity isn't the right term, but I think being able to trace this back to who's creating the structure, who's regulating the structure, who's enforcing these structures in place that you would ultimately putting your money into and investing. Mm-hmm. That's what the big struggle is. That's what the, you're talking about a struggle that is very large and, and that it is it's governance and it's what does this stuff look like at scale when people are engaging with it? And that's you, the cat's now out of the bag. You can't put the cat back in the bag. What do we do with that? Like, how do we define that? We're nine years into something. And we've got to build the definition of how this scales out when people are, are using it. And if you can be a part of defining that, then congratulations. You're hopefully a part of history and how we defined what it looks like. All the things you just discussed. Like right now, the rules are in the code, but people don't speak JavaScript. So how do we define what it looks like moving into the future? I don't know. That's what, that's what people are working hard to to figure out so do you see the government whether that's federal i guess federal and state and local playing like a positive role in that as opposed to just doing you know are there structures they could put in place that are going to be helpful you think for the industry they always do our government has always done that in history and that's what sets us apart is that we always get behind technological advancements and we pave a way for them to do well and scale well. That's just what we do. I mean, look at space travel. Now we got microwaves. We got GPS. We got all this stuff. Airline travel. You know, that started here too. Over in Europe, they were really scared of having airplanes all over the skies. And we were like, nah, it's not that big of a deal. We'll figure it out. And we did. Yeah. So I think that um, – that is kind of what gives our country, the U.S., an edge. I hate to say that because it's kind of – that's the thing is that now that's happening all in unison around the globe. And that's what people don't understand is like other countries are are working on building that pathway to what a cryptocurrency, a crypto economy, what these things look like. It's not just the U.S. anymore, right? So – I think the country that figures that out first is the country that has got the best footing heading into the future. That's just my personal opinion. Um, The U.S. is habitually known for paving the way for new technologies. We did it with the car. We did it with the plane. We did it with uh, space travel. We're doing it again with the Internet. We've done it again with the Internet. Um, Why would things be any different with crypto? So... I have, a, I have one more question for you. Mm-hmm. What, what's the benefit or what, why would I, why should I go out tomorrow and like buy Bitcoin? I know I probably can't buy a Bitcoin. I know that the value has gotten pretty high, but what, what's the value or the benefit of somebody like myself going out and jumping into this environment and investing into this type of technology moving forward? As an investment, it's performed really well. So, 
as an investment it's performed really well even with the drop i think you're still up 729 percent on the year to date today um today being just so for the audience by the time you hear this you know the reference today is february 3rd you know had you bought bitcoin a year ago today you're up 729 percent so it's a great investment. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a wild roller coaster ride, but it's been my best investment to date. So that's great. Um, sorry. Um, so for a Westerner, and that's what we are. I would say that the main reason for you to go out and buy Bitcoin and learn about this industry, because it's a brand new asset class and it's going to add to your bottom line based in United States dollars, period. It is a brand new tech that offers mind blowing possibilities with some of the smartest people on the planet working on those possibilities day in and day out. Why wouldn't you want to put a, por a portion of your portfolio to that? Because all investing is gambling, believe it or not. <laughs> Some of it's structured gambling, like what yeah. our government participates in. Uh, accredited investors get to get in on that structured gambling game. But all investment is gambling. So if that's the bet you're taking that some new technology is going to change the world with a small, precision, small percentage of your portfolio, that's a great bet. So now, if you're not a Westerner, if you're somebody who needs Bitcoin, uh, then get Bitcoin so you can do transactions and be pseudonymous on the Internet. I don't know. Like one of the cool things is like when I'm paying for stuff on the Internet, uh, nobody can tra that, trace that back to me. They could only ever trace that back to a public key. And then what do they get? A random string of numbers and letters. So that's a that's a that's an use use case. But for us here in the West, it's a great investment, man. Take some of your risky portfolio and throw it at cryptocurrency and learn a little bit and uh, see where it takes you in five years. It's a fascinating world that it sounds like there's a lot more to learn about it. Uh, yeah, the rabbit hole gets deep real fast. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I could feel it. I could feel it slipping a couple times in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> It's great. Um, did I did I answer everything well enough for you? Did I miss the miss the points? Is there still some fuzziness? Is there? You know, I think it's been it's interesting. I um, I still don't have a great grasp on uh -oh. how the actual technology itself works, but I do think I have a better understanding of how it's being utilized. And it sounds like there's really a lot of options. I was thinking about it strictly from the currency perspective, but it's pretty interesting to hear about what you differentiate as assets and asset purchases and maybe how that can be utilized moving forward for different transactions that aren't just currency. Yep. So let me tell you how the technology works. I did a poor job of that. Yeah. It's a ledger. Jump in on that. It's a ledger that isn't owned by one entity everyone gets a copy of the ledger. 
And only by satisfying a certain set of conditions can you add to a line to that ledger. That's it. That's the technology. So for Bitcoin, the satisfaction of those conditions is proven that you've done enough work to add transactions to the ledger. For Ethereum, the satisfactions for adding to that ledger that everyone has a copy of is certain conditions that are outlined through a smart contract. Right? So instead of a bank having one ledger and it houses all of everyone's information moving on that ledger, and they've gotten really good at the two-column ledger. I mean, that's a great invention, and banks took it to a whole other level. Now everyone has the ledger. Everyone can see what happens on a public blockchain. But you're only seeing the public key. That That's right? it. You only see that this public key sent this amount of Bitcoin to this other public key. But it can be traced back to the individual or no, like the way that you were just describing it. If you're using the same private key to sign those transactions that you push out, it'll get back to you. Somebody will, I'm just somebody... wondering about it from the perspective of, I don't do criminal-based work, but I was thinking about it just, I love those crime-based shows. You can pull up you know, people's credit card transactions or seeing how they purchase this or they search for this, and therefore it links them back to whatever evidence was found. And I'm curious if that's something that, Again, not that these are being utilized for nefarious purposes, but that uh, what kind of access to the information will, do people have access to or what investigators have access to or um, court systems have access to on this system? Mm -hmm. And would it actually lead them to something or would it just be uh, a string of 24 character numbers, numbers and characters? That's a great question. And I don't have the answer to that. I do know that the people that have been using Bitcoin for bad things are, are getting caught, but I think the criminal work has gotten back to old school because it's really – so unless, when you're sending transactions out from the same private key, right, you're seeing that, that there's that same digital signature there. How the criminal work behind tracing that back to a person – I think that's kind of out of my wheelhouse. <laughs> I don't really, I don't know if they're like seeing that the same digital signature is coming from the same geographical area or maybe the same IP address or the same Mac address. I don't really know how they're, they're finding the Bitcoiners that are doing that, but they do. They found a bunch of them already and just from the legal aspect, you know, I don't know. I do know that all the transactions that I make via Coinbase, Coinbase is legally obligated to take care of that. So they could basically trace all the purchases that I made from purse.io on Coinbase. You know, they could do that if they want yeah. to. Yeah. But, you know, I don't, I don't know how to get down into actually how they're tracing that back to someone. I'd imagine it takes some old school detective work that, you know, the legal system hasn't had to do any while 
but when you doing old school detective work and trying to do it at a global scale, it's got to be tough. Like to just figure out like, hey, do you know whose public address this is by chance? Like, I don't know. That has to be tough. I can, yeah. You know, I, I can't imagine that it's easy, but I do know that they're they're doing it. So I wonder if in five years, uh, these murder mystery shows on TV will be tracing people's uh, crypto transactions. Crypto There's some that try. <laughs> I think there was an episode of like Criminal Intent or whatever one of those shows is called, uh, where they did a whole thing on Bitcoin and they're like, bad guys paying for stuff using Bitcoin. The ransoms he's asking for are on Bitcoin. And I was like, oh, interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, to answer that specific question, it's a little out of my wheelhouse. I don't, I don't know how, the, how they are tracing it back to people. I do know that it's kind of like, I mean, maybe it's like a probability thing, right? Like if I'm taking my debit card and people don't know that it's attached to me, but if they keep seeing that this debit card is being swiped at a gas station four times a month, then you can start to do the detective work and say, okay, that person probably lives near the gas station. Well, let me just hang out near the gas station and figure out like who's swiping that card. Oh, I found him. Right? Like, Maybe that's how the detective work is working. Somebody's sending out things with the same private key over and over again. Then they're like, okay, every month this private key sends something out. Let's figure out. I don't know. I'm not a detective. But <laughs> I can imagine there's some detective practices that can be can be applied. And that's the scary thing. Not, not the scary thing, but Monero is a currency where your private signature gets placed into a ring of more signatures so if the ring is like a hundred random signatures and you don't know which one actually signed the thing then that's anonymous right that's the that's the monero flip that's how monero kind of flipped cryptocurrency on its head about anonymity and anonymousness <laughs> because um you sign in a ring of private in a, in a ring of signatures right so you don't know which one of those signatures is the real one so why even start looking like that's just a waste of everyone's time right how so, many how many like investments in different types of cryptocurrencies or crypto assets do you have oof like how are you, how many are you? I got in? some I got some speculation going. Let me see here. Um, let me see. Load up my little app here. Do you have an app that tracks your wallet? Yeah, I have an app that tracks my portfolio. It's not Blockfolio, what everyone is thinking here on this show. It's actually called CoinTicker. Um, I have 19 different crypto assets right now. Sounds like a lot. Uh, it has been a lot to keep up with. 
mentally what what they're so now i have this new phrase i'm trying to coin i might trademark it called know what your money knows uh because your money actually knows and does things now with this stuff it's not just money it's programmable money so the 19 different things that i do own um I know how they op I know the rules of those games and I know who's working on those, right? So I'm just I'm just a new version of the I guess a Warren, not Warren Buffett but there's this famous book called the the intelligent investor or the intellectual investor or something and I just know what my money knows. So an educated investor. Yeah, there you go. I just want to you know, that's kind of, it's no different from like, you know, if I buy a bunch of Facebook stock, I want to know how, what Facebook's doing behind the scenes. So I go to Facebook conferences and I listen to everything Zuckerberg says and, you know, it's kind of that, it's just like that. So. D, what are some resources for either Bitcoin and cryptocurrency novices like myself, if I want to start learning more and figuring out I can send you to one place. You just need to go one place. Um, are you on your computer? I am. Go to lop.net, L-O-P-P dot net. It's this guy called Jameson Lop, developer. Mm -hmm. Just interviewed him last week. Amazing, amazing. Uh, he basically has an open source. Uh, hold on, let me go to it so we can walk through it at the same time come on computer and you go to the education tab on lop.net okay are you gonna go to the computer i have articles presentations yeah go to bitcoin resources oh got it yeah and scroll down And that's your gold mine right there. Wow. That's it. Wow. That, that That's really Great. all you need. <laughs> like, in fact, I, when I interviewed him, I was like, this is the where I'm going to point everyone to now. Cause that is the gold. I love this. The first one explain Bitcoin. Like I'm five. That sounds fabulous. Yep. Okay. <laughs> There's video presentation podcasts. Uh, every this is all open source too, so you have to go onto his GitHub and like request that you want to be on this list, and then mm -hmm. his community will assess that and put you on the list or not. Wow. And what's his role? He's just uh, Bitcoin. He, he works expert? at Bit. He works at Bitco. Um, and he works on scaling. Um, hmm. but what Bitco did, they were one of the very first, um, one of the very first companies to introduce was called, um, hierarchical deterministic wallets. And all that is, is fancy for each time your, uh, your wallet is going to issue a new private key for every transaction that it does that's ultimately tied to one private key so there's a hierarchy of private keys essentially 
So it makes that traceability thing that you were talking about even harder. And he did that on, they do that on Bitcoin. Because people think that being anonymous is just for bad people, but being anonymous is actually kind of a right. Like, and a lot of people view that. I go back and forth on that, being anonymous being a right of mine. But like, yeah, like you don't have access to my transactional data unless you go to court and you force me to give it to to you. Like, sorry, Uncle Sam, you shouldn't be able to see my transactions like you can right now. Sorry, like that shouldn't be something that you should be able to see. Privacy is what we're talking about. And so Bitco, what Jameson Lop does is he worked on that privacy and they worked on privacy uh, by building upon this thing that Bitcoin allows us hierarchical deterministic wallets and multiple multiple signatures is also something that they had. So if me and you wanted to have a Bitcoin wallet together, we can, and it'd be just like having the keys to the nukes, right? Like if me and you wanted to make a purchase, we would have to call each other and say, Hey, can you sign that transaction so we can push that money out? Hmm. Right. So that's one thing that um, Bitcoin also offers is called multiple signature, multi-sig wallets. So I actually like that idea for like one day when I have kids, I'm going to give my kid a multi-sig wallet and they're going to be at the mall trying to buy hundreds of dollars worth of random shit. And I'm going to <laughs> not sign that transaction. And I'm going to say, how about you come back home and we discuss uh, money spending practices because you don't need $200 worth of makeup, young lady, or you don't, <laughs> you don't need to buy a PlayStation Pro when I got you a PlayStation Slim for Christmas. So let's talk about how to spend money there you go there you go putting in some good parenting skills already (laughs) yeah hit them with the multi-sig wallet like my dad never signs any of my purchases guys so i can't eat at jack-in-the-box today (laughs) damn right you ate a jack-in-the-box on tuesday you don't need to eat a jack-in-the-box every day (laughs) so um yeah bico they do hierarchical deterministic wallets and multi-signature wallets and Stuff like that. So. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Kind of like joint bank accounts. You got to get the, got to get the others' approval. Yep. Um, absolutely. Coinbase offers that too, by the way. So they offer a multi-sig wallet where, like, if you have money, that it's basically like a savings account. You and your husband can have uh, a, a cold wallet that they build for you. That's also a multi-sig wallet. And so whenever you guys want to move money out of there, your husband will get an email and you'll get an email and you have to both accept it in order for money to move out of there. So it's kind of neat. But I think we can wrap it up. This is the longest on-ramping I've ever done. (laughs) It's good. This has been fun. Yeah. I hope I, I helped you understand technology a little more. It's so... I don't know. The possibilities are endless, but at the very end of the day, it's this distributed ledger that everyone gets to see the activity that takes place on it. And you've got to have, you got to meet a certain conditions to add to that ledger. So, yeah, I'm, I'm interested. I'm going to learn, I'm going to spend a little bit more time digging in the technology. I think I'm really interested in the social cultural impacts of what this would look like moving forward and how we, how it's utilized as more and more of the populations jumping on board. Yep. Well, can you do me a favor? Yeah, what's up? Can you, can you say play the outro? Play the outro, D.
Thank you.